she phoned the office and asked for me and basically said, and I mean, I think I have it here, um, I'm after killing somebody, can we put it in the newspaper? When you see murders on TV and plots and, you know, elaborate plans, I mean, this is just the absolute opposite of it. Total chaos. I'm Nicola Tallent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Anna Marie Pazillo was a regular visitor to the Sunday World offices during her days living homeless in Dublin and suffering with addiction issues. Each time she spoke with journalist Niall Donald, she promised him the big one, but he never held her to that, recognising instead the difficulties that she faced in life. In and out of prison, and living a chaotic existence, Anna Marie would come and go. Then one day, she told him she needed to sit down and tell him something that she had done. It was then that she confessed that she'd killed a man by suffocating him with a plastic bag. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. We get all sorts of people phoning us up with stories, particularly, I think, in the Sunday world that can attract, um, you know, a a very uh, interesting mix of people. But um, I think probably for you, the one that has stood out um, was the person who phoned in and ultimately admitted a killing to you. We don't expect confessions. No, I think in, in in where we're based with with the other newspapers, they always say the the doormen always say the Sunday World get the most interesting people calling in. But uh, yeah, it was a very uh, yeah. I mean, I'll just read the the quote that that introduced that morning to me, which was, "I'm just after killing someone. Can you put it in the newspaper?" So what happened? This is uh, Anne Marie Pazillo. Anne Marie Pazillo was uh, somebody that had come in contact with the newspaper uh, before. I'd spoken to her and done a story with her um, about a very sad incident. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. Mm. Um, You know, she'd been uh, in the the Doka Centre, where she spent most of her adult life one way or another, and had fallen uh, head over heels with a a prison worker. Mm. Um, An obviously unrequited prison worker, you know, behaved impeccably, but she'd been subsequently finished her sentence and had been removed. Anne Marie Pazillo had been removed from the prison and had basically tried to get back in. So she had been removed or released from the prison and she tried to get back in because she was in love with somebody in there. Yes. And, you know, there'd been a whole investigation subsequently because she'd stayed outside the prison and there was certainly, I mean, there's no doubt about it that, that she had suffered from varying degrees of mental illness, mm. you know, really severe. There had been an investigation. And at that point, she'd, when there'd been a, a report, she phoned up the newspaper and I'd gone to meet her. Right. And um, we did an interview, a small story, actually, just about, you know, how the prison might deal with these things in future. Um, and uh, What was her logic in getting back in that she was... Well, she was she in love with this person. Okay. And, and she didn't want to leave. But, you know, the underlying 
thing, I suppose, with all of these things was like a deep institutionalization. And, mm. um, you know, we're all, uh, you know, you get familiar. I mean, the famous thing in the, the, the Shawshank Redemption about the, the guys at Brooks who comes out and can't cope. And this woman, Anne-Marie Pazillo, who's obviously went to prison ultimately for a very violent act. Um, you know, so there is that. But ultimately, she was very tragically suffered from this. Um, so what had she been serving time in prison for? Well, I mean, I don't actually know on that one occasion, but it was she had something like 120 convictions at that time. And the vast majority of them were for you know, what would be regarded as relatively petty crimes. Mm. She was one of these serial shoplifters. And um, there was various uh, sort of crime. There was certainly one violent uh, robbery. There was other, you know, nonviolent robberies, all feeding a chronic drug addiction that had, that had, you know, become a feature of her life in the, in her early teenage years. So she was basically a, uh, one of these repeat offenders. I don't yeah. know exactly what that one was, but that yeah. was the nature of the crimes. So she'd kind of been in and out of prison and was probably, as you say, institutionalised. She was happier when she was in there and maybe living under that well, regime. Well, I mean, it was very, very tragic because, I mean, she'd, she'd been um, in the care system as a, as a young, a young uh, teenager. Mm. She'd spent time in the Central uh, Remedial Hospital um, and uh, as a as a teenager in her mid mid teenage years, um, and then she'd first gone into the docus at the age of seventeen. Right. So, really, by the time she called me, I think she was in her thirty one, maybe. Right. And out of those fourteen years, from the day she went into the docus at seventeen to the age of thirty one. Um, she reckoned she had spent at least 10 to 11 of those years in the docus. So, I mean, that's what you're talking about. And when she was out, she was homeless? When she was out, she was homeless. Um, Couch surfing. Well, I mean, exactly. Um, no, in, in the homeless system proper at times. Um, and then she would be out and she'd be collecting charges as, as you'll have come across people where yeah. they're really minor things, shoplifting, yeah. you know, whatever, other public order type offences. They collect a certain, she collect a certain number of them. She might have 10, 12 charges hanging over her, know that she's gone back to prison and just sort of waits till they all, they all come together on a court date and is out on bail in the meantime. So, I mean, that's how I met her. Um, I actually went down and interviewed her in, in James's hospital at the time, um, you know, there was a report and there was there was lessons to be learned, I think, for the prison system at the time. And, you know, you have to say she was 100% right that she was removed from prison and there was nothing there for her. Mm -hmm. This is somebody with, you know, clear problems. So they're just, they're expected to walk out the door and go nowhere. They don't... Well, not necessarily. The like, there is some people that, that help and there are people that certainly work really, really hard in, in the prison system to help them. And there's people working, obviously, in, in certain areas in, in society to help people. But it's not automatic. And that's that was her point, that she felt she was kicked out of the door. She'd been there, you know, on and off for years. She had no, nowhere to go. 
and that that she needed more help and more structure. And look, she undoubtedly has a point. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Amidst that, was this sort of a logical belief that she was in love with somebody yes. and was to be was to be allowed back into prison to yeah. sort of conduct whatever yes. Yes. in her head relationship which, there yeah. was, which wasn't all in her head. I yeah. think she did accept it at that point. Mm. Um, so that was my first introduction to her, and then over the next number of months, year and a bit maybe, um, I, she kept in touch with me. Um, <laughs> so this is where this kind of the uh, you know the, the other hat of the counselling service comes in. Well, yeah, counselling, I don't know, but I mean, she was uh, like she was a great character, actually. Yeah. Um, you feel sorry for these people. Look, I mean, that's yeah, awful, tragic. It's awful, life, tragic. I mean, you know? it's desperate. And there was all other things that she told me that, you know, occurred to her that I wouldn't go into. But, you know, very, um, you know, but she was a funny character. Like, you know, yeah. she would be good company. And she was, in fact, um, obviously living an extremely chaotic life. But yeah. quite sort of self-depreciating. And But she used to anyway then, the aftermath of that, she'd phone me up and... Um, you know, she'd phone me up. Sometimes she was in and out of prison a bit and she'd phone me up. I got a really, really big story. It's going to blow it open. Yeah. So the first time I thought, oh, well, you know, who knows? And, uh, you know, I go down and meet her just outside where we work here. And, uh, you know, it had quickly become apparent she had no story at all. It was just, can you give me that 20 quid and I'm going to get this big story for you? And, you know, um, so I used to... Uh, Give her the 20 quid. Sometimes. Yeah. You know? I know. Total uh, soft touch, by the way, if there's anybody well, out there. Well, you know, there's a lot of people say I'm not a soft touch, but sometimes, so, but it was always this, oh, I've got this massive one and it, I, I have these incredible pictures from inside the prison. And in fairness to her, uh, you know, she she didn't want to be a rat either. <laughs> yeah. So she probably did have stories. Yeah. But, but she, she wasn't was going to actually give it to them because yes. that wasn't her. Thing, but so uh, following through with actually, yeah. you know, coming up with the, the facts that were going to make a proper story. No, she no, wasn't, that just, wasn't her skill. And set. she would look for uh, look for twenty quid or forty quid and accept yeah. the tenor or whatever. But, but you were obviously kind of half fond of her, like I mean, I was half fond of her, and and um, I mean, it, it it became a kind of a legend then in the building as well because um, she turned up uh, on one occasion with uh, she'd obviously been in hospital for some something had gone wrong, you know, and um, she had bad health, definitely. And uh, she turned up in her, she'd obviously done a runner from the hospital. Uh, she wasn't content in staying in there. And she turned up in the reception. I got a call from the guy. There's somebody down to see it. Um, and she still had the drip in her arm. <laughs> and she was in her hospital pajamas. I swear to God, I have this vision. I have a memory of that. I must have walked either yeah. downstairs with you or out at yeah. the time that she was in the, and yeah. I can still see her yeah. standing there with the drip, yeah. the hospital gown, yeah. and just thinking to myself, this place is daft. What yeah. next? Yeah. Because we do get all sorts you in do, a way. You do get all sorts. She'd got a taxi, I think, that she time. She got a taxi, yeah, which was not uh, financially efficient, if you think about and then it. And she hit you up for the taxi. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, so anyway. that morning, it was actually a Saturday morning, and I remember the morning of a Ian Quinn, uh, the morning after Ian Quinn had been pronounced dead and uh, it was a Saturday morning and we had started looking into it as we would in a, a sort of a Saturday as for the Sunday paper. We look into these things. Very Just what had happened? He, a body was found, was it? in, in um, A body had been found in West Dublin, Unger. 
Yes. Um, and uh, I think, if I remember correctly at the time, it was one of these things where the news breaks and it's not clear if there's murder, foul play, but it, you know, there's certainly a suggestion of that coming from, I think we got a call from somebody local to say, you know, they believe it's a murder investigation. Um, and then, um, you know, somebody, I think, had talked to locals and got a few names, and that name had come back, Anne-Marie Pazillo, which is a very, um, you know, yeah, there's, there's not going to be two Anne-Marie Pazillos floating around. I think she was of Italian extraction. And then a couple of hours later, you know, she phoned the office and asked for me and basically said, and I mean, I think I have it here, um, I'm after killing somebody, can we put it in the newspaper? And as simple as that. And um, So she came in to tell you? She came in to tell me and um, the logic of it, what she said at the time was that... Um, she wanted to get her side across mm. that she's going to be charged with murder. She's been out on bail and she wants to get her side across because people are going to be saying this about her, that about her. Maybe this was the big one. She'd been promising you. Yeah, well, it was. But yeah. um, so, so what? T- tell us what had happened and at that point then what she said. I mean, it must have been very strange. Did you feel as you were taking in what she was saying oh my goodness this, this oh well I mean I knew I mean so I knew two things first I knew that um you know it's not it's an on-the-record interview yeah so I knew I was saying to her like this is going to be on the record you know like we're not doing this as a you know we're not you couldn't possibly have taken that kind no. of confession and then no said no you couldn't no so it was on that so that was made clear to her and um you know so basically what had happened was that they'd been, um, you know, it's a, she had been with a friend of hers. Anne-Marie had just been out of, out of prison. Um, she called into a friend of hers. Uh, she was staying with a friend of hers on and off, um, Rachel Comiskey. And Rachel Comiskey had been in an, a relationship, on and off relationship with a guy called Ian Quinn. Um, so all of these people, as it was said in court, had suffered from problems to do with addiction in a very severe way um, <clears throat> over a long period of time, you know, chronic addiction issues. Um, so basically, um, Ian Quinn had been, had called to the house at a later point. They'd all been uh, drinking, taking a lot of drugs. Um, so, and what she told me at the time, and I'll actually just read a, a few of the quotes. Yeah. She said, um, she Anne-Marie said she killed him in self-defense. Um, she said they'd, they'd, the fight had, there'd been a fight and um, he had uh, fallen asleep and they woke him up after he wet himself. And she said Eden was after wetting himself, so we started taking his clothes off, but he got aggressive and hit me in the face. He punched me a few times. I pushed him then against the wall and he fell and banged his head. Then I put a bag over his head and I was saying, if he gets up, he's going to kill us. It didn't even seem like it went on for a long time. She was referring to the bag. Um, and then he obviously, they put a bag over his head. He suffocated. Um, they subsequently said in court that they tried to cut holes in the bag. They didn't realize he died very quickly. They were just trying to knock him out. Mm. Uh, Anne-Marie was at least saying that. 
Um, and then, you know, in the classically describing the absolute chaos of this, of what had happened, like they, they, they didn't seem to remember what had gone on. And she went on to tell me they'd fallen asleep with Ian Quinn dead there in the house, not really having hopped on what had happened. And she said, when I woke up, I realized what I'd done. I'd been very, very drunk and I had taken tablets, Zimos. I just thought he was unconscious. Then we went out. His girlfriend was touching him and said, he's very cold. I think he's dead. And for hours, we just debated what to do. I thought about running from my house or getting my family to help us. You know, I just kept saying, there's no way out of this. And so that that is the absolute. I mean, if you think about, you know, when you see murders on TV and plots and, you know, elaborate plans. I mean, this is just the absolute opposite of it. Total chaos. Total chaos. chaos. They didn't yeah. seem to realise that they could kill him. Mm. Um, she obviously put the bag over his head, thinking, oh, I'll just knock him out and calm him down. Um, and now, was then, she upset when she was telling you this? She or was, how it was her demeanor She like? was deeply upset, actually. Um, you know, and, and the reason was that... Um, you know, she had obviously had some convictions of, of violent crime, um, you know, but mostly it was, as I said, um, it was of a very petty nature. Um, so I'm just going to read out what, what she did say to me at the time. She, like, because she did feel guilty. She said about Ian, Ian Quinn, I'd known him since I was 14 years old. He was like a brother to me. He was a funny fella, but when we got drinking to him, he just changed. I feel guilty. I can't believe I had it in me to do something like that. I feel I'm going to wake up at any moment and it's going to be a dream because everything I feared that would happen to me in my life has happened. I regret it. Of course I do. Um, and when I put the bag over his head, I was thinking, I don't know if he's going to kill us dead, but he was going to do something to us. And then she said, it was just a total accident. I never meant it to turn out this way. I'm so sorry he's dead. I thought I was just frightening him. He has a nine-year-old child. He was a great character, but he could change so quickly. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's that's that's her perspective. Of course, then when I when I did get the court, um, you know, Inquin obviously had a family. Mm-hmm. Um, Inquin no no more than than the the two other women involved also suffer from addiction. Um, you know, also had problems, but it, there was a victim impact read out on behalf of the Quinn family in court. And they said Ian was eight in a family of 13. He was a kind and loving person, but had taken a wrong path by taking drugs. Their family had been devastated by his death and they will never recover from it. And of course, that's, that is the core of it, you know, that you have two women who are obviously victims in 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 part of, of many lives destroyed really many lives destroyed mm. and, and no um you know not saying that a killing should have a gain but in many cases that we've come across that somebody who has gone out even in a manslaughter case there would be some you know gains for some there's been gains for none in this yeah and um, of course there is a devastated family and mm. you know that that you know kids losing their father and i mean it's 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 terrible but I mean, it's all a very tragic case. And so, Comiskey and your pal Anne Marie were given six-year sentences in May 2018 for the manslaughter, backdated to when they first entered custody a month earlier. Now, both have since been released. So, tell us what's happened, Anne Marie. Well, 
<clears throat> I mean, Anne-Marie uh, passed away uh, September last year. Um, you know, she seems to have accessed some treatment in 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 the the in the in the prison system and through you know care that was given in that way. But she obviously died a premature death as a as a very young woman. Mm. Um, uh, Rachel Kumsky now is back out. Um, you know, and there have been seems to have made a good effort to clean up her life and move on. Um, but we've had a story about her in recent days that she has been attending an outreach centre in Dublin and looks very glamorous and very well. And you know, perhaps she'll stay on the on the straight and narrow. Straight and narrow. But it's a tragic story. All you know, it's a it's a story of of you know. Um, the problems that people face are are immense, and you do wonder if the state could have more effective interventions at a young age, whether these tragedies may never happen. Mm. It may not be that simple either, in fairness, you know, if people are living chaotic lives. To yeah, leaving people in those chaotic existences and those chaotic lives, each crisis lends them back up in prison again. They might clean up a bit, they come back out, and they fall back into that same company. We hear that again and again. Um you know, a lot of that class of addiction, people will say, who know about these things better than I do or you do, that, you know, there might might have been missed opportunities to identify learning difficulties at a young age. You know, counselling may have been needed. There might have been trauma there in the background that was never dealt with. So all the time they're getting the help to get clean in prison, but they're getting back out and they're straight back into addiction. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the, certainly the, the the addition of those, uh, like in Zimos, as Zimavane uh, sleeping tablets is what she was referring to. But some of those drugs are very, you know, causing great damage, I think, in in in, in amongst that, that community, you know. So, look, it's a, it's a, it's a sad tale, really. Niall Donald, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.